Hey guys, thanks so much for choosing the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice, and it really means a lot to me that you're listening. In each episode, my goal is to shed a little light about how the brain works, the power of stories to influence the brain, and if you decide to use this information in your personal branding or leadership journey, your consumer goals if you're in marketing, or any way to advance your goals and dreams, then I'm happy. I really want to simplify neuroscience and behavioral science. You're about to hear from a neurosurgeon who is just shy of 35 years old. Ian Human, that's right, Human, has a beautiful mind. I met Ian a couple years back and we hit it off immediately. He and his wife Norma have recently had a baby boy. In today's show, we toss out the neuro jargon and talk from the heart. I simply wanted to know from Ian how has having a baby shifted him and what will he tell his newborn son about the brain as he grows? I think you're going to find the answers surprising. Meet Ian. Enjoy. Ian, welcome to the Brain and Bread Show. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. So when did you become interested in the brain? Before I answer that, I've actually, uh, I need to take you back why I was interested in medicine, first of all. So growing up, my mom was quite ill and I was in and out of hospitals. So initially, seeing this happen, seeing how the doctors treated my mom, how she always managed to get better, I thought that was something that I wanted to do. And then it was only later on in, I think it was my second year university, that I was interested in the brain. And it was purely by accident. We were doing a ward round with our neurologist um, professor, and we were discussing the various cranial nerves and tracts in the brain. Basically, you have a sensory component to the cranial nerve, you have a motor component to the cranial nerve, and then you have mix. And he asked me about the motor component of hearing, which initially I thought was really strange because there's no motor part to hearing. <laughs> but me trying to be clever, I said, possibly balance. The professor called me to him, tapped me on my shoulder and said, I must stand next to him. And then he told the rest of the classes, um, guys, this is my captain here now. Um, he is going to be captain of the stupid team. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then from then I decided I need to know more about the brain. And that's how, <laughs> that's how the interest. <laughs> that is so funny. I mean, going back to your mother, my mother's health challenges as well is the reason I'm doing this show and the reason I'm doing my work as well. Isn't it incredible uh, how much family, particularly mothers, influence our lives, right? It's just insane. It really is. It really is. Like my brother is also, also became a doctor. I think for that <laughs> very same reason. So yeah, it really is how it influences us. So when did you decide to become a neurosurgeon? After our internship, we do a community service here. Uh, my community service here started off doing obstetrics and gynecology. I was three months in and completely hated the job. I had done call after call. There was no sleep. I was losing weight. Just didn't like the smell, actually. <laughs> and there was an opening in neurosurgery. One of the doctors had just left. And without even thinking about it, I just applied. I got the job. 
the professor in charge of neurosurgery at that time was Professor Ian Copley. He had another medical officer, Ian Staples, and then I came there. Ian wow. Wow. So <laughs> I, th- I think from then it was just like written in the stars. <laughs> that we, we, we were a small department in Port Elizabeth in my hometown, and they used to call us Primaris, Secundus, and Tertius. <laughs> Me, That's obviously, crazy. Tertius. Yeah, the last one. Yeah. And then from there, the professor retired. We got a new consultant in and he, he encouraged me to uh, further my studies. That's where I came up to VITS and pursued the neurosurgery career. Congratulations. This has been a tough year for everyone, but you and your wife, you guys have a baby. Yes, we do. How old is your baby boy now? He's actually four months today. Four months. So how has it been? Take us through what it's like to be a father of a little boy. I know a lot of people say it's the best thing ever, but I can really attest to that. I was just looking at him this morning. My wife went out shopping and I was just playing with him. And I was, I was like, honestly felt that it's been the best four months ever. I've really enjoyed it. I was just thinking about the day he was born. So he's our uh, pandemic baby, born within a pandemic. It was quite tough because whilst getting ready for his birth, we needed to be sure that I was safe to be there in the delivery room. So I had to toss up between treating my patients, when to stop and how long to take off. And then everybody was pushing for... Uh, cesarean section because apparently that is the safest you're able to test you're able to plan it we opted against it and then actually didn't deliver in a hospital we delivered in a a maternity clinic with the midwife it was quite nerve-wracking yeah because me being a doctor my gut instinct was that I wanted a doctor around to deliver my baby but the maternity sister that she was just amazing and had really? everything under control, yeah. So, wow. at, at what point did you relax? Was it something you did that she did? Because, you know, having your wife there in such a vulnerable situation must have been nerve-wracking. It was. It really was. So, she, my wife was actually post-date, so she was 41 weeks already. Many times we were, we thought she went into labor, but she actually didn't. And then the time she actually went into labor, she was walking in the mall. I think we were trying to get a phone for someone. And she'd walk for a bit and she'd be like, oh, I have a cramp. And then like wait a few minutes and carry on. And I was like, oh, this is nothing. It's these Braxton Hicks contractions. But literally she was <laughs> having full contractions. We, oh, we, wow. got to, we got to the clinic and she was seven centimeters dilated. And therefore, unable to take any medication. So my wife delivered on two panados, two paracetamols. <laughs> you have got to be kidding. Yeah. Insane. So, so, so in that sense, I was, I never really relaxed <laughs> until that baby was out. <laughs> Even when he was born, he, he was actually born with a cord around his neck. It was around his neck twice. So normally they let the dads cut the umbilical cord. The nurse just rushed straight into action clamped the cord, cut it herself, delivered the baby, took him away, got him on oxygen. I was, I didn't know what was happening. Like, I kind of knew, 
And also, I was in a different state. I wasn't in the doctor state at that, at that point in time. Yeah. I can imagine that you must have gained so much increased respect for your wife, much have grown closer, knowing that she delivered, she delivered a baby under that level of pain. Because I guess the ordinary father would have appreciation, but you would know what her body was enduring. Yeah. Tell us a little yeah. bit about what you were thinking when you knew she was under such extreme pain. It was almost like I was blaming myself. How could you do this to her? <laughs> really? Like a pregnant. <laughs> 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 Why didn't we just go for the Caesar? Wow, she was so resilient. I think I'm still traumatized. <laughs> I think the next baby, if we have one, is definitely a Caesar. <laughs> But she, what, she, tra- what, was, what traumatized you? What, what specifically was traumatizing? Severe fatigue that she actually had, like, and how you have to actually just muster up this energy that I don't know where it comes from to push the, the baby out. I, I, know the, I know the physiology behind it. I know what's happening to the body at that point in time. But like, and I've developed, like, as I said, I was in obstetrics and gynecology before I got into neurosurgery. So I, I've, I've delivered babies. I've cut 60 cesarean sections, but never once was I in that situation. And it was absolutely crazy. Like, I, I, can't, I can't explain it. I don't know how she did it. And I have nothing but praise for women. Like, yeah. who go through it. How do you think this has changed you? So... Like you said, I mean, looking at this as a doctor versus as a husband and a father is two different lenses, right? How has it, how has this new lens influenced how you see women and your wife? I've, I've always had that respect for women and I've always believed that they were these incredible beings, um, mainly because of the influence of my mom. And I take you back to like exactly why I became a doctor. I could see her strength when she was in hospital. I remember she was really, really ill. And my brother and I, we'd come to hospital and we'd just be so excited because of the vending machine at the hospital. It's one of my memories is that we went to mom to go and visit her, but we were also going to get one of those chocolates in the vending machine. Um, and she was, and she was really happy about that, you know, like she, she was always obliging, always like wanting us to feel comfortable. And only later on did I actually grasp the realness of that situation, how she was more worried about us getting our chocolates than her recovering. And ever since then, like I've, I've had this like high opinion that women are just like absolutely amazing and once my wife became a mother, it was an easy transition, like like for me just to like have that same feeling towards her. Yeah, yeah. Does she ever abuse her newfound power? Does she chase you outside, make you go do things because she knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really, actually. She's actually been really, really good. <laughs> I wish awesome. I had like I, I wish I had like something to put a situation to say like where she's abused above, but she hasn't actually. <laughs> That's really cool. Let's talk a little bit about your son. His name is Luca. What yes. do you want Luca? What do you want Luca to know 
What will you plan? What do you plan to tell Luca about the brain as he grows up? From a brain point of view, what I, it's funny. Um, I'll take you back to when my brother first met uh, my child. The the first thing he did was he held him and put his hand in his on his head, felt his anterior fontanel, felt his posterior fontanel to see if it's all fine, measured it, and Norma was, uh, my wife's name is Norma. Norma was like, what's your brother doing? So I said he's actually doing a physical check to see if, if Luca's brain is developing well. <laughs> and, it was, <laughs> and it was just, it was hilarious because that's exactly what I did the first thing that I saw him. What I want him to know about the brain is that it, it is the most powerful organ in the body. We don't understand it, but there are many facets to it. Memory and learning is not the only intelligence that we need to know. We also need to know it have emotional intelligence. I don't really care if he's not the smartest child, but I want him to be a child that has a good emotional um, intelligence because I think that's what you get. That That's how you get far in life. That, that, that is, uh, that, that's, that's the main thing that I want. And that's what has been passed on by my parents. Wow. It's incredible because if you think about all the functions of the brain and how the, the prefrontal cortex is responsible for planning and strategy, I love the fact that you're like, you know, all of that stuff is great, but if you don't have the ability to internalize and process your emotions, all of that is useless. We can talk all the strategy, we can talk all the <laughs> high-level mapping of the brain, but that's it. Have you seen in your work just how much a lack of emotional intelligence positions people to be vulnerable and create a lot of injury? I'm imagining you've had people come in who drank too much, who's been wild into fights, and they end up with brain problems? Is that part yes. of what's inspired it? Definitely. Definitely. There's a lot of problems in society. I think we, if we had a better emotional intelligence, like for an example, say you're in a bar fight, right? Yeah. You, you know, you have to be emotionally intelligent to know that let me step back and rather look like the weaker person in this point in time and save myself a beating than run my mouth and prove to this drunken person that I'm more intelligent than you and then getting to a fight and then you don't know what happens. So if you have that emotional intelligence to put yourself into that person's position, um, you can actually like avoid so many complications because that's how we communicate. Yes, we want to show off our egos like we want to sound like we are the most intelligent we want to show that we are the most physical but i think the person that actually gets ahead in life is the person person that has the highest emotional intelligence it's you've had to open up the brain of a lot of people who were not so emotionally intelligent and i can imagine that you know at some point your son is going to be a teenager his hormones are going to be raging He's going to be at that stage where he wants to fight. He wants to be the alpha yeah. in the room. He wants to let yeah. everyone know that I'm the man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it, it, it definitely is. He's going to have to get through that and he's going to have to learn. Um, 
in those situations, he needs to burn his fingers and he needs to learn. <laughs> yeah. Ian, I'm really happy for you and Norma. I really wish you guys the best. Uh, I'm enjoying sort of following your career. What's in the future for a neurosurgeon? You know, when your son is a teenager, where will you be? What will you be doing? You know, will you specialize? You know, what, what sort of trajectory are you on? What do you see for yourself? I'm caught up at the moment as to what I actually want to specialize in. For the moment, I'm a general neurosurgeon. So I operate on the brain and I do the spine as well. I still work in government. In government, I do the more intricate type of work. And that's just to keep my fine motor skills intact. So I work on the base of skull, which they say is the, the most challenging part of neurosurgeon. Some neurosurgeons will argue against it <laughs> but for me, I, think, I think i think that the base of skull is the the most intricate part that's where all the cranial nerves are that's where all the blood vessels are and you it's like it's tiger territory once you get there i enjoy it i'm not sure if i want to continue with it i really like it but i think it will take off like years of my life <laughs> <laughs> That stress every operation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm exactly. not sure. I'm not sure if I'm going to stay a general, a general neurosurgeon, or delve into that. Well, whatever you That's decide, awesome. I wish, I wish you the best, and um, thank you so much for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show. Thanks, thanks so much, Tom. It was an honor being here. Thanks. <laughs> thanks so much, Ian. Guys, we're in a fascinating chapter in history where our lives are likely to be tossed to and fro for some time to come. Ian's advice to work on your emotions is powerful. I can't stress this enough. One of the most simple ways you can learn to master your emotions is to spend a little more time understanding your breathing. Recently, I've been doing the two breaths in, one slow breath out technique. This helps regulate my diaphragm, which connects to a space between our thinking and our feeling brain, conscious and unconscious dimension. Whether you choose meditation or simply decide to spend a little more time loving yourself, take the advice from a neurosurgeon. Please leave a wonderful comment and rate the show. It will mean a lot. Until next time.